It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Another month, another no-holds-barred account of the thrills and frequent spills of life in the White House. They've ranged from the sycophantic, from former press secretary Sean Spicer, to Anthony Scaramucci's glowing appraisal of a president he admired, but who fired him as communications director after just 11 days. There have been harsh reckonings too, from former FBI director James Comey, as well as damning descriptions from veteran journalists Michael Wolff and Bob Woodward. Collectively, they paint a picture of an administration riven by infighting, in which senior staffers praise the president in public, but are privately contemptuous. It's an impression not helped by repeated leaks from within, most recently of the president's private schedules. So how is it that a leader who inspires such fierce loyalty in his supporters inspires so very little inside his administration? My guest today is Cliff Sims. Until a month ago, Few people outside the White House had even heard of him. A media man, he went on to be the president's special assistant and director of message strategy. His account of that time, Team of Vipers, has earned him plenty of primetime television, but also a lawsuit filed last week by the Trump campaign. They claim he's violating a non-disclosure agreement signed in 2016. So on Monday, Mr Sims filed his own suit against the president himself. He claims Donald Trump is using his campaign organisation to silence him in breach of his First Amendment rights. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, why is there always trouble in the Trump White House? Cliff Sims, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to dive in on a question that I don't think I've put before on this show, which is, why are you suing the president? (laughs) Well, I'm probably the least litigious person uh, in the world. I've never filed a lawsuit against anybody in my life. So I figured if we're going to do it, why not start with the president of the United States? Uh, But, you know, uh, the the campaign, the Trump campaign, filed an arbitration claim against me trying to apply the nondisclosure agreement that uh, we signed on the campaign to my time in government service. And so uh, kind of backed me into a corner, and I feel like to stand up for myself, we had to uh, file a lawsuit in in federal court that basically says that a private NDA of that type could not apply to my time in, in government service, because ultimately, while I did serve Donald Trump and I served him faithfully while I was in the White House, I didn't work for Donald Trump. I worked for the federal government, ultimately for the American people. And so that's about as good of a layman's explanation of the lawsuit as I could possibly give you. Well, we'll see where that one plays out. But let's turn to your account of that time in the campaign and the administration. But what reaction did you really expect to it? Because if you call your book Team of Vipers, I suppose you're leading with your chin, aren't you? 
Sure, a, a little bit. I think the one thing that I was naive about going into this is that the possibility that you could have a nuanced conversation about the current state of American politics with uh, this media environment. Every book to this point that has been written by somebody who worked for Donald Trump was either a, you know, let's set the building on fire, tear the whole thing down kind of book or a sycophantic, you know, it's the greatest thing ever kind of book. And I wanted to thread the needle where I think the truth is. Uh, some of the things that are in the book, I think, will be surprising uh, in a good way, perhaps, uh, about the president and the people around him. And a lot of it is perhaps, you know, not painting them in as favorable of a light as they would like. And so when you try to do that, you go into that knowing Donald Trump being who Donald Trump is, that there's a chance that you get attacked for it. And he tweeted about me and, you know, said a lot of things about me. And so that's kind of to be expected. But, you know, I, I guess I was just naive in thinking that, um, that maybe he wouldn't going into it, that maybe he'll understand that my, my motives are not to, to try to you know, burn the house down, so to speak, but to just paint an accurate picture. The Vipers might have given that one away. <laughs> Let's talk about your role in the, the White House, head of message strategy. Now, that does sound very important. Uh, one can imagine in a sophisticated political environment as we, we live in in our times, roughly what that is. But the president has dismissed you on Twitter, on his favourite medium, as a gopher. What responsibilities did you really have and how how strong was your access? Well, you know, first of all, it's hardly surprising that he would say something like that. If you recall, he said that he barely knew Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon barely did anything on the campaign and Michael Cohen barely handled any of his legal work and go down the list. I mean, it's kind of par for the course when you leave the Trump White House. But my job consisted of uh, pretty much all communications related things that could mean staffing the president for media interviews, uh, doing talking points, advising him and other senior staff on uh, how we're messaging certain things. Uh, But Ultimately, people can can judge for themselves. They read the book. Uh, not a single story that's in the book has been challenged. And there's a great photo insert in the middle of the book where you see dozens of photos of me and the president in private settings, whether it's in the Oval Office or in the private study or private dining room or walking down the West Wing colonnade. And so people, I think, can judge for themselves. And no serious person at this point is actually questioning whether or not I had access. Well, when you say head of message strategy, you also you had a background in communications. You were very media savvy from your previous work. You say in in the book, and it sort of leapt out at me among a lot of quite critical descriptions, you do seem to think that Mr. Trump is a master of the message. You cite Make America Great Again as one of the most impactful slogans of modern times in politics. How did you witness that close up? Well, I noticed in pretty much everything that the president does, he approaches it first from a communication standpoint. So, for instance, there's a scene in the book where he's naming the tax bill, the big uh, overhaul of the U.S. tax code. First time we were going to try to do that in about three decades. And he wanted to call it the Cut, Cut, Cut Act, which seems very simplistic, but I think really kind of cut to the heart of what we were trying to do, which was cut taxes. And so, you know, make America great again, or, you know, all the different slogans that you've heard. I think he approaches pretty much everything from a branding and communication standpoint. And a lot of the criticisms that he would have of his counterparts in the U.S. Congress uh, were that they just didn't get it and they didn't know how to message to the American people. And and so I think that uh, it, it really gets inside Trump's head when he's making these decisions. It's very much 
uh, it, where it's less about the policy and the down in the weeds details of what the policy proposals will be and more about how does it fit into his brand and how does it fit into his, the way he's communicating. And it's really the way he approaches every single thing he does. You recount whole conversations in quotation marks, which implies that we have to have confidence in your accuracy, apparently from very meticulous note taking, though often you're on the move or you're in an elevator or things are moving very fast around you. Should readers basically expect when they read something like your book or they they read another author who's telling one of those inside stories in quite a heated way, that this is recollection rather than note taking in the moment? Well, for me, part of my job was taking notes. And so a lot of the foreign leader meetings or meetings with members of Congress, it was literally part of my job to sit in the room and and take notes on those things. And so a lot of the quotes are about as close to accurate as you could possibly be without having a literal audio recording of it, because I wasn't, you know, walking around with a tape recorder recording all of this stuff. Any qualms about publishing them, because it seems that there's now such a low bar, particularly given the strains around the Trump administration, to basically breaching what you could call a code of trust. Nothing to do with the legal status of this. Sure. It's really the ethical status of it. The the stories that I chose to tell in the book were were not gotcha stories. It was not like, you know, here's a, a, an embarrassing private moment to try to, to, to your point, you know, violate a confidence. Uh, because I think every president deserves a level of confidentiality that they know that they can have candid conversations with their advisors. The stories that I tell are stories that I think get at larger points. I'm trying to make a larger point with the story that helps the American people or help the world understand the way that Donald Trump operates, the way that he approaches decisions, and the way that he thinks. And if someone said, well, aren't you one of the vipers in that nest, what would you say? I would say absolutely. I don't let myself off the hook because if I'm going to be honest about the the very difficult work environment that it was uh, that it was working there, uh, I have to be honest about the fact that there were times when I contributed to that, where I was one of the vipers, the infighting and the backstabbing and the you know going after each other. I participated in that, and so I am not the hero of this story. Uh, I was just there. What are you ashamed of? Well, I think one of the, the scenes in the book that, that I remember that I wish I had handled differently was when the president was very frustrated that there were all these leaks from anonymous White House officials trashing him in the press. And he calls me into the private study and says, who are these people? And I started naming names. And I justified that in the moment by saying it would be better for the president if these people weren't there. But if I'm being honest with myself, it would have been better for me if they weren't there. I regret that I allowed myself to be caught up in that that cutthroat environment that I think causes people when they have this unprecedented access to power. I mean, I've never worked in a White House before. I never had access to the president of the United States. And it revealed things about my character that I didn't know prior to, to being in that environment. And not all of those things were flattering. And is Donald Trump the source of this toxic atmosphere, as is often alleged or is sort of implicit in the kind of publishing Barnum, which accompanies uh, books like your own? Or is he also to an extent the victim of it? 
I think both, actually. And, you know, any any workplace environment, I mean, I was the CEO of a company before I went to the White House. And for me, uh, the, the workplace culture at my company started with me. And so I think the same thing goes for any organization, including the White House. It starts with the president. And I think that his uh, the way that he makes decisions, the way he pits staff against each other, the way that he kind of cultivates this uh, these rivalries internally sometimes can actually be good, I think, lead to better decisions, but ultimately does not create an environment that's conducive to a team atmosphere. And so I definitely think it starts with him, but I also think that he... He was a victim of it, as you put it, in that there were a lot of people there who were very self-serving. And I don't think that he was being served well by a lot of his advisors. And look, there's a reason why the book is called Team of Vipers. And of course, it is a play on Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's very famous biography of Lincoln and those around him. And in Lincoln's case, it was a conscious decision to bring these opposing views and characters together. Do you think Donald Trump in his own way, has a similar idea. I do, actually. And, and I think trade is probably the, the issue on which it's most evident, where he brings in people who have uh, wildly different perspectives, points of view, ideologies. The very first trade meeting in the Oval Office after John Kelly became the president's chief of staff, and he brings in Steve Bannon, uh, Gary Cohn, who was the head of the National Economic Council at the time, his top trade advisors, and they basically have a giant argument in the Oval Office for about 30 minutes, where at one point, even the president is engaging in it and saying, you know, well, we've got a bunch of globalists here in the room, and what do they know about this? And, you know, Steve Bannon is, you know, pushing his nationalist, more protectionist trade ideology there. And the whole thing ends with no decision getting made. We walk across the hall into the Roosevelt Room, which is a conference room, like just across the hall from the Oval Office, and a giant argument ensues between the top trade advisor and the top economic advisor. Uh, And it was really kind of a, in a nutshell, what it was like to to be involved in policy debates in the Trump White House. And one of the things that I think he doesn't get enough credit for is bringing those, you know, very divergent perspectives, widely different points of view. And sometimes I think you can get better decisions when you get those, you know, various points of view. The problem was in the Trump White House, whoever lost that argument would often then go out and leak whatever the decision was to the press to try to get the president to turn around and change his mind, or they would spend all their time slow walking or just flat out not executing whatever he decided to do. And that's where things really break down. And on those, I mean, you know how the White House works day to day, and you've you've sat there in the rooms and, and watched the comings and goings. The, the leaked schedules recently that's got everyone rather fascinated is the designation of executive time, about 60% of the last three months, according to a version published by Axios. Does that ring a bell with you? And is that TV time? Well, it definitely rings true to me. There's no question. I mean, I kind of watched when we first got to the White House as his the schedule would start around 8 a.m., and I would often be one of the first people to see the president in the morning. I would meet him at the private elevator uh, in the White House early in the morning. And as time went by... Is he a morning person? Well, so that's kind of about the point I was about to make is over time, the schedule kept getting pushed back to the first meeting being at 9 and then 10. And now I think it's at about 11 o'clock. And I think the, the leak of those schedules led people to believe that Donald Trump is someone who doesn't work hard. 
what I found was he does not like structure. This goes all the way back to his time running his business. Uh, he even wrote about it in his books that he doesn't like to have structure. He likes to come down to the office in the morning and just start making calls and kind of see what happens. I found him to be a hard worker, kind of a, a nonstop worker, but just he really chafed at any any structured time. And so that's what I think those leaked schedules are really more reflective of. He's not a morning person, I think, in the sense of like a traditional morning person. I want to get into the office early, but he does he does not sleep much. So I think he is up late and up early. Some of that is watching TV. But I, I found a lot of times that he's just working the phones constantly. Has Twitter been his friend or his enemy? Both. I think it's the most powerful communications medium on on the planet right now. And he has the ability to, to, to change or shape entire news cycles, and he would be crazy not to use it. Uh, but there are certainly times where uh, he tweets things that certainly as a staffer, you were just like, why did we have to do that today? Why is the entire day now going to be devoted to this, you know, random tweet? Uh, so I think it cuts both ways. There are so many character judgments out there on Donald Trump. And one that just stood out in your account for me, because I don't think I'd seen it before, is that you said he's the most methodical, patient person I've ever seen in a crisis. You're not just still spinning, are you, Clev? Well, no, no. I mean, I think that's one part of his character that I don't think people really have a full appreciation for. And you really can't until you see it up close and personal. But, you know, any normal human being, the number of crises that he has endured, the number of scandals uh, that would take down any other politician or president that he's been able to weather, what I saw was good day, bad day, anything in between. He just gets up and goes to work the next day and then the next day and then the next day. And I think there's something to learn from that for, for all of us that, you know, when we go through difficult periods that sometimes you just got to get up and go back to work. And, um, you know, patience is probably not the first word people think of when they think Donald Trump. Uh, but I do think that he is he has faith in his ability to weather any criticism. I was impressed by that, 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 that his, his willingness to endure any amount of criticism if he thought he was doing something that was right. But what I could never quite get to the bottom of was how does he decide what is right and wrong? What are the moral or value judgments that he makes to decide what the right or wrong thing is? I mean, like I said, he'll do anything we endure any criticism once he makes a decision he thinks is right. It's just really tough to get inside his head, though, sometimes on what exactly, you know, how he comes to the decision of what is the right thing. And where did that leave your view at the end of why there's such little loyalty? It's what pervades your account. It seems to be a running theme in, in others, too. So it's it's not just down to, to one man's view of working in an exciting but very difficult and quite conflicted place. He doesn't seem to inspire vast loyalty. I have I got that wrong and we just don't hear from the loyalists. No, I, th I think that's right. And look, I would consider myself a loyalist. I mean, when, when I was in the White House, like I was in the so-called loyalist camp. I mean, I never said a negative word about the guy while I worked for him because I didn't think that that was right. I worked, I worked for him. But I, I think what I learned was loyalty in Trump world is a one-way street. 
that he does demand it of people. He does, you know, it's kind of a buzzword that he just loves, you know, people that are going to go out and, and be loyal to him, especially publicly. But I found that he does not give loyalty, that does not extend the other direction. And the last chapter of my book is titled Disposable, because I learned the one unfailing truth of Trump world, which is that if you don't share his last name, you are disposable. And I think that people get that. Uh, when they work for him, and that's why sometimes, I, you know, he perhaps does not get the loyalty that you might expect. And looking ahead now to, to 2020, do you see any credible challenges on the Republican side to Donald Trump? Or indeed, let, let's be bipartisan. Do you see any on the other side of the aisle you think could beat Donald Trump? Well, definitely no Republicans. I mean, Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. There's no question about that. On the Democratic side, the the problem right now for Democrats is they are in some ways held hostage to a base in their party that is so far left that it is hard to imagine them being able to win the states that are the swing states that decided the last election, that are kind of middle America, the Rust Belt, factory towns, blue-collar workers in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio. I mean, those are the states that delivered the presidency for Donald Trump. It's hard to imagine on many of the Democrats that are kind of the front runners right now appealing to those voters. If they did put forward kind of a more Reagan Democrat, a more um, you know, centrist Democrat, I, I think that, that they, he's, he's vulnerable in, in those states. So it kind of depends. Of the announced candidates at this point, I think Kamala Harris uh, is impressive. I think as an African-American, she'd be able to turn out uh, the African-American vote in a way that perhaps uh, the Obama, kind of put back together that Obama coalition that you saw. But otherwise, I just have a hard time right now looking at anyone who's a declared candidate as a Democrat and envisioning them really going toe-to-toe with Donald Trump the way that they're going to have to to win this. Uh, But it's early, so we'll see what happens. And as a message expert, what would your messaging advice be to Trump going into 2020? Would it be play the socialism card, double down on your achievements, another, a higher, a better, a different wall or something else? Those first two that you mentioned are, are probably really good ones. Look, socialism in the United States... Uh, I still have a hard time believing uh, has the type of widespread support that's going to get anybody elected president. And uh, and him hammering on that, I think he you, you kind of saw a preview of that in the State of the Union address where he said the United States will never be a socialist country. And even some Democrats stood up and applauded that. I think that's a powerful message depending on who is running against him. But I think it's going to come down to the economy. If, if it's still humming like it is now, if we're still growing at three plus percent, uh, if unemployment remains at historic lows, including for African-Americans and Hispanics and kind of cutting across all demographic groups, if wage growth continues to be in the four plus percent range, all the things that we're seeing economically right now, if that sustains, I would just hammer on that nonstop. That's going to be a really tough message to beat. And just tell us, before you leave us, what the next move will be in your legal standoff against the commander-in-chief, no less. Well, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, We'll kind of wait on a decision from the the federal court uh, on whether or not government employees can be bound by private NDAs. So we feel really good about that, confident in our uh, legal standing there. But for now, it's just going to be wait and see. And as with everything in the uh, the U.S. justice system, probably going to take some time for it to play out. What will you do if you win? What will happen? 
Oh, man, I don't know. Well, we have to say, I just want to be left alone, ultimately. I just want to be left alone to, to tell this story, uh, which is a true story, uh, and not have the President of the United States coming after me. So hopefully I'll just get, uh, get to spend a little bit more time sleeping in in the morning. Cliff Sims, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And what do you think? Is the White House always a nest of vipers? Or just this one? And does a little venom have its uses? Write to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.